It is so good to be back home in Charlottesville. I want to thank Josh Moran, who is a campus pastor who's leaving our church and going to James Madison University to pioneer a campus ministry there. And so he filled the pulpit while I was away and did it wonderfully. So thanks to Josh for that. Yeah, let's give Josh a hand. Now, full confession. Have you ever come off a vacation and feel like you need another one? You ever get like that? You're so mellow, you can't get up and get going. That's how I feel this morning. So I'd appreciate your prayers, but what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to continue the sermon series that we will be in all summer. The sermon series is entitled, The Gospel of Mark, Faith for the Real World. Faith for the Real World. And in this, I just need to remind everyone that the mission statement of City is very simple. It's this, follow Jesus and serve others. Now, we do this by being biblically-based, relationally-driven, and spirit-led. But I want you to clearly understand that what drives our church is simply this, follow Jesus and serve others. And I learned this as a preteen boy, as I began to read the Gospels, and those two things leapt off the page at me, follow Jesus and serve others. So this morning's sermon out of the Gospel of Mark, we have now made it to Mark chapter 2. And again, we're going to process through this gospel all summer, but we are now in in Mark chapter 2, begin reading in verse 1. Let's read it together. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. It's fascinating, but the gospel of Mark lets us know that Jesus actually had a physical house. We don't know if he owned it. If as a rabbi it was given to him, we just don't know. But the Bible is clear that in Mark chapter 1, in the latter half, he had been out being an itinerant rabbi. He'd been healing the sick. He had been driving out demons. He'd been teaching the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand, and now he's back home in his house. Let's see what happens. Verse 2. It says, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, digging through it, and they lowered the man, the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? Reading on, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that, it was, that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up and took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. Now, that's an understatement, isn't it? 
Isn't it funny how the gospels just kind of say, well, and there's how they, of course they responded like this. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, here's what I know. I know we have a lot of people at City who are kind of looking over the fence at faith. One of the things we need to understand is that the Gospels are written in such a way to where you are to put yourself in the story. That's kind of the genre of literature. So when Mark is writing his gospel, when John Mark is writing his gospel, he is wanting you and he's wanting me to step into the story and pretend like we're there. And so what you would experience, kind of some of those emotions where you're at the house, you've heard that Jesus, who's your local rabbi, is gone, and now he comes back, and when he comes back, you hear that he's been healing people, and you go to his house, you heard he's returned, and when you go there, he's giving one of these profound teachings about who he is, and about the Older Testament and how it points to him. And in the midst of that, you're in his house, and he's teaching, and then you begin to hear something. You hear people scrambling across the roof. Now, what we know from ancient Israel, and I've been in Capernaum several times, the homes are small. They have excavated that entire little seaside village, and you can see the original synagogue. You can see the foundation of the homes. And when you're there, the homes are extremely small. You sense this. And so what you have to picture is Jesus is in his home, and he begins this teaching. He's having kind of a life group, just like what we have here. Only the whole town wants to hear. So they are pressed in. And while he's teaching, you can hear someone begin to scramble across the roof. We know that the roof was either covered with tiles or shale or thatched. One or the other. And so Jesus is here teaching. And as he's up front teaching, all of a sudden people begin to peel back the roof. By the way, they did a few exploratory digs. Then they find him. And they dig open the roof. And how big do you think that hole has to be for four men to lower a paralyzed guy down through? It's pretty sizable. And so I'm assuming, safely assuming, Jesus had stopped about 10 to 15 minutes in. Now these guys are digging, peeling back tile, debris falling down, and they lower their buddy down. And I always picture it as this guy's literally right here. He's sort of floating, hovering on his mat with these four guys holding him. And Jesus is looking, and the four of them have their torsos down through the roof because they want to see what Jesus is going to do. It's an amazing scene. Now, as we look at this scene, please know that whatever Jesus says next, it's going to be remembered. The daily progress is there. The news media is there. And they're listening. And this paralyzed guy is on a mat suspended in front of Jesus. And everyone is waiting with bated breath. What he says next, everyone is going to remember. And what's amazing is, is Jesus says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. The gospel in verse 5 says, he said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Has Jesus even been paying attention? 
is my British mother would always say, this is a British phrase, it says this, what was in front of him was as obvious as the nose on his face. Why did they suspend the guy? He's paralyzed. Why are they suspending him? He needs healing. Jesus does not deal with the healing. He looks at the man who is paralyzed, can't move, and he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Let's talk very blatantly about faith for the real world. It's this. There are many things that can bring us to Jesus. Many things. What I would like this simple phrase to kind of resonate in our hearts is this, is that the pressing needs or the pressing need that brings them to Jesus is not the priority for Jesus. Let me explain it. Many of us have come to Jesus because of one of the following reasons. Some of you came to Jesus, or maybe now you're checking out Jesus because you're in the midst of grief. You've lost someone. Others of us have come to check out Jesus or your original movement towards Jesus was because your life wasn't going well. It looked successful on the outside, but you knew on the inside something was sideways. Something was wrong. Others, I know for a fact because you've told me you started coming to City Church, you started checking out Jesus because you wanted a moral and an ethic for your kids. Others, you've come here because of relational struggle. Some, fear and anxiety has gripped your life. You've met a follower of Jesus and they had peace. And you thought, you know what? I'm going to go check out Jesus because I need peace too. Others of us came to Jesus because of emptiness. You've been climbing the ladder, you've been achieving, but something is empty. Some of us checked out Jesus because of addiction, whether it's sexual, whether it's drugs, alcohol, any number of things. But I know your stories. And many of you, that was the pressing need. One of those, or maybe you have your own, but one of those needs brought you to Jesus. Please understand that the pressing need that brings me to Jesus is not the priority of him. His priority is to deal with sin. That's the number one priority. Now picture this as we kind of talk about faith in the real world. We know from the latter half of Mark 1 that Jesus has been doing a lot of healings. These four guys know that he's been doing healings, so they get their buddy, and they now have suspended him in front of Jesus, and Jesus looks at him, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now picture this, faith in the real world. Picture Jesus tweets that he's going to come to Charlottesville in September. And when he says he's going to come to Charlottesville in September, he tweets that he will do his initial offering of forgiveness. The first forgiveness he's going to offer is going to happen in Charlottesville, and we know that it's going to happen. Because you see in Mark 2, what we just read was the initial offering of forgiveness that Jesus brings in the Gospel of Mark. If he were coming to Charlottesville, and we read 
we're following his Twitter feed and he lets us know that he's coming. And there's going to be this initial offering of forgiveness. We would have two recommendations for Jesus that we would encourage him to consider where he should go. And then there's two that we would never recommend. The first one. Some of you have already thought about this. You're sitting there going, I know where I would send Jesus to offer forgiveness. What I would do is recommend to Jesus that he goes on grounds, or maybe really the fringe of grounds, and there's these places called frat houses. (laughs) And on any Thursday, Friday, or Saturday night in September, Jesus, we would recommend that your initial offering of forgiveness would be, gone, would be given there because that's where sinners are. That, that, you know, people sin in there. A lot of people that believe that have never been to one, but the point being, or if you didn't think of that, you might recommend this. You might say, you know what, Jesus, your initial offering of forgiveness is coming. I would recommend that you'd go to Avon Street Extended and as you exit Charlottesville, right on the right is the Albemarle County Jail. And there's hundreds of men and women in there. And all of them have terms up to two years. They're serving. They're guilty. We would recommend that you would do your initial offering of forgiveness there. That's what we would recommend. Now, many of us would go, that's right. But here's two recommendations we would never make. First of all, none of us sitting here thought about our own home. No one thinks if Jesus tweeted he was coming to Charlottesville to offer that initial offering of sin that we would say, Jesus, can I recommend my house? What about mine? Jesus, I'd really like it if you would come to my house. Reason is, is when we think about sin and we think about sinners and sinning, it's over there, isn't it? The other thing that we would never recommend to Jesus is that he would give his initial offering of the forgiveness of sin by going to UVA Medical Center, finding the floor where the people are paralyzed, and going there. The reason is, think about it, paralyzed people can't sin. He's paralyzed. He's on a mat. He can't even get himself to Jesus. Four friends have to bring him. We would never recommend going to the place where people are paralyzed. Because you see, when we think about sin, we think about action. But the amazing part of this story is, is that Jesus makes his initial offering of forgiveness in a home, and it's his. And he offers it to a man who is paralyzed. Now, what's fascinating about this, and I want us to kind of go a little bit deep into this this morning, is this. How much sin can a paralyzed man do? I mean, think about it. We don't know how long he was paralyzed, but how much sinning can he actually do? Not much. And the other thing is this. What he definitely can't do is somehow earn the forgiveness that Jesus is offering. He can't earn it. And there are many people who think about God and they think about Jesus and they think in order to get forgiveness, what I have to do is I have to pile up my bad deeds 
And then what I need to do now is I need to earn and do enough good deeds so this pile outweighs that pile. Many people think this. But I want, to catch, I want you to catch this clearly. The Bible says Jesus looks at their faith and he looks at that man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. That guy can't do good works in order to cover his bad ones. He can't. He's paralyzed. And I think the genius of this story and why the Holy Spirit really encouraged Mark to write this in his gospel is because so much of what we think about forgiveness simply isn't true. You see, Jesus looks at the faith of those five people, the four with their torsos sticking through the ceiling and the guy laying on the mat, and when he looks at the guy, he ignores the obvious need that brought them to him, and he goes straight for his priority, which is the forgiveness of sins. Let me put it this way. If a paralyzed man needs forgiveness, so do I. He can't even sin anymore. I need forgiveness too. If he does, then I do. Now the Bible goes on in verse six to tell us that right after Jesus makes this announcement to the guy and says, hey, your sins are forgiven. It says in verse six, now some of the teachers of the law who were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? So when Jesus looks at the guy and says to him, your sins are forgiven, he intrinsically is stating that he is standing in the stead of God. It's amazing. And by the way, the teachers of the law, just to let all the lawyers here who hear this sermon off the hook, it's not that kind of law. It's not one, someone teaching up at the law school at UVA. No, this is someone who knows the Older Testament scriptures and knows that God and God alone can forgive. And yet Jesus looks at the guy and says, your sins are forgiven. I want to sit on forgiveness just for a few moments because I really want us to understand what forgiveness is. It's important if it's the priority of Jesus, if it's his primary reality, I can come to him for any number of reasons. And by the way, we'll see in the story, God heals the guy. Jesus heals him. So it's not like he ignores why we come to him, but there is a priority. There's a priority. And so when I thought about forgiveness, what I thought about was this. Let's say, after church today, People start heading home. And I go to a house, and when I'm at the house, while you were in church, this house was robbed. Was robbed. And while I'm there, a police officer shows up and says the following. I caught one of the guys that was robbing the house, and he's talking to me, and he says, I caught one of the guys that's robbing the house. The other four people got away, and all the stuff that they stolen is completely gone, and we will never retrieve it but I've got this guy. And I look at the police officer and I say, forgive him. Let him go. Just forgive him. The police officer looks at me and goes, really? Are you positive? 
Just, yep, just forgive them. Just cut them loose. Totally forgive them. And as the police officer goes to undo the handcuff, something dawns on him, and he looks at me and goes, is this your house? And I say, no, it's Pastor Scott's house. That's <laughs> eh, Pastor Scott's. Just let the guy go. Who cares? You see, the idea is forgiveness works when someone has offended. The offended party must forgive. Scott's going to show up and have a total different story. You know what he's going to say? Who's going to pay for everything that's being forgiven? And I'll say, I'm not. Not my stuff. Easy to forgive. You see, the idea is this, is that in order to extend forgiveness, I have to be offended. And here's what you clearly understand with true forgiveness. Forgiveness always costs the forgiver something. Always. If someone's too quick to forgive, it means they have not calculated the offense. But you see here, Jesus is standing there and he looks at the guy and says, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. What does that mean? Jesus is standing in the stead of God and he's looking at the guy and saying that your sins, plural, are forgiven. In other words, he's looking at the guy saying, you've sinned against me. I'm God. You've offended me. I'm the one that the offense is against or the offenses are against, and I'm looking at the cost, and I'm agreeing that you are forgiven. From that moment on, Jesus' trajectory was towards the cross, and here's why. Every time forgiveness is given, it costs something. Every time. And Jesus now offers forgiveness, knowing now that the trajectory of his life is towards the cross, where he will pay the price for sin. It's important to get that. Now, here's another thing that's extremely important to understand. Jesus offers forgiveness in a home, not in the temple. You see, all Jewish forgiveness can be found, but you know how it's found? It's found by going to the temple, taking with you some type of an animal, which is clearly outlined by the law of Moses, and you take that animal, or if you pour it, you take something that has value to you, and you take it, and you bring it in the temple, and that is offered to God. And when it's offered to God, that cost ultimately, or the death of an animal, something has to pay the debt for the sin of your life. That always happens in the temple. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks at a guy who's paralyzed in his home, and he looks at the man, and what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. The idea is this. Man, lying here paralyzed, you don't need to go to the temple. The sacrificial system is now completed in me, and I have the right to forgive you. And the elders and the teachers of the law who are sitting there, they know instantly what's happening. Jesus is now circumventing the sacrificial system and saying that forgiveness is found in him. You can find it in him. And he offers it to this man who is paralyzed. Now, in all sincerity, why wouldn't Jesus heal him first? 
Why not just go ahead and heal the guy and take care of that? I want to tell you why. There are many people who are able-bodied who are not free. As a matter of fact, this past week, I stood on a beach and I watched fireworks about the freedom of the United States of America. And in my humble opinion, we live in a great country. We really do. I've traveled extensively. We live in a great country. Oftentimes it's written about our country that we are the freest people, a, the freest nation to have an extended life that has ever been. And yet as I'm sitting there on the 4th of July, I'm watching fireworks go off by the Corolla Lighthouse, off to my left, miles and miles away, along the shore, along the beach, there's another huge fireworks display, and people are celebrating freedom. But all of us know you can live in the freest nation in the world, and you personally cannot be free. You know this. You've experienced it. You see, the idea is oftentimes the presenting need that brings me to Jesus will not truly set me free. What I need is to experience the forgiveness that Christ can bring. Jesus knows that those gentlemen sitting up front, the experts in the law, know that he has circumvented the temple sacrificial system. Not only this, Jesus, by saying, I forgive you, is saying that he's God because God is the, the offended party and God alone can offer forgiveness. And so they're thinking, how can this guy say what he's saying? He's blaspheming. He is saying he's God. And in response, here's what Jesus says. He says, which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or take up your mat and walk? Which is easier to say? If you're God, it's easy to do both. But if you're merely human, one of them can just roll off your tongue, and the other one, nothing happens. Jesus, in this context, is elevating the primary reality of why he has come. And that is so that people can find forgiveness for sins. Now what's fascinating though is Jesus uses a title for himself. He says the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Where does this come from? Well, this title is the title, and you, we will see it all summer throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. It doesn't mean that he had Mary as his mother. What it means is there's an Old Testament prophecy found in Daniel chapter 7, and Jesus is linking himself to that prophecy. And here it is, Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Here's what the prophet Daniel saw in the Older Testament. He said, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a, what? Son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days, which is God the Father, and was led into his presence. 
And he, whoever the Son of Man is, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power over all the nations, and every language worshipped him. Whoever this is will receive worship, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." You see, Jesus is proclaiming who he is through the name that he gives himself. He says, I am son of man. And he uses that title throughout the gospel of Mark. Here's what I want to share with us. And to me, this is so important that we understand that Jesus is the son of man. His kingdom will never, never end. He will receive glory. He will receive worship. And suddenly he is now positioning himself as part of the Trinity. And we're going to look much more deeply at the Trinity over the next several weeks. But the idea here is, is that Jesus, by grasping Daniel 7, And by doing this miracle and calling himself who he is and saying that he is able to forgive sins, suddenly Jesus positions himself real time as part of the Trinity. But remember, his primary reality is the forgiveness of sins. Here's what I want to tell you. I can forgive you for sinning against me. I've been forgiven many times. Do you know how you know that I've been forgiven many times? I'm still married. That's how you know. Because my wife forgives, and what you know intuitively is that every relationship, the currency of every relationship is forgiveness. But let me explain. I can forgive you of something. You're free. But when Jesus forgives you, you are truly freed up from yourself. That's powerful. Oftentimes, when I first was checking out faith as a preteen boy, what was explained to me is that the forgiveness of Jesus kind of gives you a divine do-over. You've kind of been messing up. The tally of your sin goes from here to eternity. And so what you do is you bring that to Jesus and he wipes the slate clean. And then there's always that sense though, once he does that, that the slate begins to just get all filled up again. Jesus' forgiveness is not a divine do-over. Jesus' forgiveness is absolutely transformational. And the reason why is I have found in my own life that the forgiveness that Christ brings to me frees me up from myself. It is amazing. Here's the other thing I can tell you about when Jesus forgives you. There will be a fundamental change in who you are. Oftentimes when a person forgives us, we think to ourselves, whew, I got away with that. Not when Jesus forgives you. When he forgives you, there is a fundamental change that hits the heart and the life. Now, not to ignore, Jesus does heal the guy, doesn't he? He deals with the primary reality of why he came, the forgiveness of sins, but he doesn't ignore the healing that is needed, and he heals the guy, but the healing is to prove the authority that he has to forgive sins. But I can tell you with full confidence, Jesus still heals today. 
He doesn't just come and say, oh, your sins are forgiven. He's a God that still heals. He does. And because of that, in August, beginning on August the 4th, for two Sunday nights for the first kind of semester of the fall, we're going to be having a service over at City Church Central, and it's going to be called the Sunday Evening Vigil. And what we're going to do during that time is we're going to have an openness to the presence of God. Not only that, we're going to have healing prayer for the sick. For people that are sick and want healing, we will be there to pray with and for people. And the reason why is Jesus doesn't just forgive. Jesus also heals. And the first one will be on August the 4th from 6.30 to 7.30. I'm extremely excited about that time that we'll be spending together. Now listen, when it comes to forgiveness, there are some of us here this morning, you desperately need God's forgiveness in your life. In praying about this message, I could sense so clearly that there are people where your heart's cry is to have the guilt and the shame taken out of your heart and out of your life. Self-talk won't do it. Lowering your moral standard won't do it. In fact, if there wasn't a moral standard, that stuff's still going to be there. But I've got great news. Jesus forgives. And when he does, he sets you free. And so as we close out our time, I'm going to encourage you, young, old, doesn't matter, that if you know you need forgiveness, I'm going to encourage you to pray a very simple prayer. And in praying that prayer, I'm going to ask that all of us would stand together. And as we stand together, maybe for the first time in your life, you'll turn the compass of your heart towards Jesus. You'll say, you know what, Jesus? I've always thought about sin in the frat houses or up at the jail. Maybe it's me. If the paralyzed guy needs it, so do I. Maybe you've been trying to work to get forgiveness, do enough good deeds. It's not how it works. This is something Jesus brings and he gives. The Bible says when he saw their faith, he said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Can we in this moment open up our hearts to Jesus by faith? And maybe for the first time in your life, you will open up by faith to him and say, Jesus, here I am. Here I am. Jesus, I sense that your Holy Spirit is working on my heart and on my life. And so, Jesus, now I open up who I am to you. And I ask that you would forgive me. And that you would cleanse me. Jesus, you have the authority to do this. And I pray that you would. But Jesus, please, don't leave me as I am. Touch me and fill me. Give me that transformational forgiveness that gives me strength and the passion and the authority to live a different life. Jesus, now I thank you 
for your forgiveness that is flowing freely in hearts all over this room. Lord, keep us as a group of people who are open to your forgiveness and we receive it as freely as you give it, but always knowing that forgiveness always has a price that must be paid. And we thank you, Jesus, for paying for the price of our sin. And we pray for this, and we believe for it, in Jesus' name.